This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello, my friends. Here we are at the start of a brand new second season of Life Worlds. I had myself a well-needed winter hibernation under a thick blanket of snow, playing quiet and still like the seasons. And I hope that you also had some well-deserved rest since we've been together last. I am feeling invigorated with the new energies of the spring. As I look out of my window, daffodils are winking cheekily to me and tender green jewels are unraveling at the tips of all the trees. And there is a blackbird that wakes me at 5.50 a.m. without cease every morning to announce the new day. All of these things indicating that it's time for me now to bring you a new gathering of friends and voices that speak on behalf of our ever-unfolding and brilliant living world. I'm going to set the scene for this new season by starting us off with one of the world's leading voices for conservation and communicating the lives and minds of other species. His name is Carl Safina, and he is an ecologist whose lyrical writings have won him many a literary award, fusing ecological history and serious science, personal travel logs, and global insights, all which tend to illuminate the very delicate interplay between the living world and our own. Why am I drawn to Carl's work? Well, I think there's something quite unique in how Carl conveys a deep inner world of other kingdoms with a very special kind of intimacy, sincerity, and acuity. He uncovers the rich truth, and a truth that actually may be surprising to some of us, because humans like to claim monopolies on many things. He unveils the truth that many species and animals have entire cultures, entire traditions, familial stories, individual quests, all of which are a part of this symbiotic tapestry of tales that we call nature. In his books, he travels along the sweeping wingspans of albatrosses, the elephants of East Africa, the wolves of Yellowstone, the orcas of the Pacific Northwest, and a whole other cast of characters like sperm whales, seals, turtles. And in all of these, he deciphers the roles that matriarchs and elders play in cultures. He describes how individual personalities affect all kinds of behaviors and how these creatures too experience mourning, loss, and grief. There are things in his books that made me laugh out loud as well, like when I learned that animals are often attracted to what they see other animals are attracted to. There was a tale about a virgin female zebra finch, a bird, that sees another female mating with a male who's wearing a white leg band. And guess what? She prefers to mate with, yes, a male that also wears a white leg band, I guess some things about being an animal on earth are just inescapable. And on a more philosophical level, I think that what Carl illustrates to us is that we are also similar under the skin. As he says, four limbs, the same bones, the same organs, the same origins, and lots of shared history. And between the first breath and final gasp, we all endeavor towards one common quest, to live, to raise our young, to find space enough for our lives, to survive the dangers, to do what it takes, the best of our abilities, to live out the mystery and the opportunity of finding ourselves somehow in existence. And so today in this interview with Carl, you will hear us speak about the fact that many species exhibit qualities that were long considered hallmarks only of human intelligence, things like signals of identity and codes of group belongings, beautiful stories of whales here. And Things like the fact that because animals do have these highly evolved and complex cultures, and these cultures affect everything from their migration patterns to their communication, to their breeding choices, to how they avoid risk. Well, 
if they have these cultures, what happens when these cultures disappear? Or when our land regeneration strategies, when conservationists ignore the existence and the necessity of the culture? We end on what I find is a very fascinating note. That all these cultures, all these specializations in the animal kingdoms create themselves new forms of evolution. And not only that, but they can teach us something profound about the orientation that we and many species have towards the experience of beauty on this planet. So without further ado, here is Carl Safina. So hi, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Life Worlds. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Well, it's a real pleasure for me. At the core of your writing and work, I've encountered this very sincere act of translation. You peer into these other lives, these other societies, these other nations, even if I can use a word that you use. You uncover their cultures and their stories and even their traditions. And you also bring forth this message how we've very much lost touch with the experience of other animals. And in one of your books, the first one I read of yours, actually, when I was living in the forest in California, I remember perfectly the moment of my life I was reading it, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, you take the perspective of the world around us. And in your words, you try and see who is here with us. So in this hour we have today, I want to talk about animal culture and your thoughts on evolution and a lot of the things that came up in your latest book. But first, I think to set the scene, I want to talk about how you get in touch with the experience of other animals and whether some approaches to that are better than others. Because in your books, I see this sense of we can sometimes see animals through a lens of their similarity to us, but we can also see them on their own terms, whether or not they are like us. So I'm curious about how you think through those different approaches and whether some may be optimal or if they're just different. Well, I don't think through the different approaches. My approach is just watch as much as you can watch. And I guess then think about what you've seen and what it seems to indicate and what it seems to mean. I don't know. I mean, I think this is not something that I exactly learned to do. It's more like something that I have always done. There were always some animals very close to me. My father's hobby was raising canaries. As a really little boy, I could sit, you know, right next to a cage and watch the birds get on and off their nests, watch them make their nests, these impossibly tiny eggs and the incredibly small chicks, and just watch them care for their young ones. And then when I was seven years old, I started to breed, well, I started to raise, I guess you would say, pigeons. You know, when you're young, you have a lot of time. So I used to just stand inside the coop and watch what they were doing. And when you're raising pigeons, you have a stack of boxes and you put a bowl in each and you leave a pile of nesting material in the coop and they do their thing. They figure out who they're going to marry and sometimes they have fights and they make their nest and they raise their babies and they're gone for a while each day when they're out flying around. Then they come back and they feed their babies dinner and then everybody goes to bed. Right across the yard from that coop, we lived in an apartment building in our own stack of boxes where people decided who they were going to marry and sometimes they had fights and they left for a part of the day. They came back, fed their babies and went to bed. So it just always seemed to me that in broad strokes, our lives were much more similar than they were different. And then I was taught not to do that and that that's not the right way to think. And um, I've only done a lot more watching since then. But I never really liked bird watching where People, you know, they want to make a list of what they've seen every day and they go out and they just tick things off. And, you know, it counts if you can identify a bird that you hear singing. So you can put that on the list. You don't even have to see it. That kind of thing, turning it into a game or a sport like that doesn't appeal to me much. Yeah, I mean, there's something very clinical about just ticking some creatures off a list. This was something I thought was very interesting that I didn't know about that you mentioned in one of your books that 
you spoke to now, which is your formal training had a directive not to attribute human mental experiences, thoughts or emotions to other animals. And if you were to make those inferences, it could wreck your professional prospects. I think that's absolutely absurd. You know, we talk about anthropomorphizing, but let's move that word aside. Just the notion that we can't see another animal experiencing fear, sadness, uh, you know, as you mentioned, fighting, uh, marriage, all these things that you had in these kinds of parallel universes you described with the birds and then the people in the apartment blocks. The fact that your training as an ecologist didn't allow you to attribute any kinds of emotions to animals seems incredibly ignorant and short-sighted, actually. Why was that even a thing in the discipline? Well, I I think in a way it's even worse than you're saying, uh, because, you know, to have a rule about what you're allowed to think is really not scientific at all. That's more like the kinds of things you might come up against in certain religions or certain kinds of training that you might get that way. Science is supposed to be about evidence. Evidence advances with, you know, thinking about things, having an idea, testing the idea, seeing if you can find evidence for the idea. It can't advance if you're not allowed to think in certain directions. So that directive that you can't attribute human thoughts and emotions to other animals was uh, not, you know, was unscientific and quite misguided. But I will say, to seemingly contradict myself, you shouldn't attribute human thoughts and emotions to other animals. You should watch what other animals do. And if the best explanation for what they're doing and why is that they have thoughts and they have emotions, then that's what you should be free to believe if that's the best explanation. Otherwise, you're left with kind of nothing. And that's, in a sense, that's where we went for centuries, was to insist that other animals have no thoughts, have no other emotions, and experience nothing at all. That makes it easy to abuse them and... That's part of why people insisted on that. There's something I've always struggled with in this space. And actually, I saw a book in my favorite bookstore in Point Reyes that summed it up really well. And the title of the book was, Are We Intelligent Enough to Know How Intelligent Other Animals Are? <laughs> yeah, that's Franz de Waal's book. Yeah. And I thought it really sums it up quite well because, you know, there are incredible advances in how we understand, let's say, apes and tool making and crows and ravens and corvids and you know, oh, oh, wow, they do things like us. Therefore, they must be smart. And on one hand, I'm like, okay, if that gets the general population to care more about an octopus, then fine. On the other hand, I still think there's some kind of arrogance in that, that, wow, it's similar to us. Therefore, we should care more about it. Maybe we shouldn't eat it and maybe we should protect it. There's kind of like this tension in me as as I encounter that. (laughs) The arrogance knows no depths. I mean, just today in the New York Times, there was a really incredible article about some anthropologists who discovered in a place in Portugal that Neanderthals were eating crabs. And it said in the article, in several places in the article, that this is such a big surprise because we always thought that Neanderthals were not smart enough to eat crabs. I mean, gulls catch crabs, raccoons catch crabs. Why would a being that's in the same genus as us not be able to catch a crab? The archaeologist there was saying, well, we always thought of Neanderthals as sort of these lumbering beings. What other animal lumbers around? All other animals are acutely aware of their environment. They know exactly what they have to do. They have, if anything, better senses than we have. So, you know, why would we have to think that another type of human being that existed until really not that long ago was incapable of catching crabs? I mean, for goodness sake, it's part of this whole othering denigration thing Mm -hmm. that we really specialize at being so good at that we can take anything and anybody and figure out how we are better than them. That's a kind of a psychosis that our 
species in our culture have burdened ourselves with. That's so well said. It reminds me of another line I really liked in one of your books, where you said, the imperfect evolutionary work in progress, known as human empathy, right? (laughs) I love that. The imperfect work in progress, known as human empathy. I mean, it's so true. And I think one of the greatest contributions I feel of your writing in your books and of also what you're doing through the center is creating avenues through which other people can get in touch with, I, I do believe, the inherent empathy that we all have. And this is probably a good place to start speaking about culture. Before we get to culture, I just want to say about empathy, there is a paper coming out in Science, uh, I think it's later this week, showing that zebrafish exhibit empathy. The paper is embargoed, so I really can't say how they did it It's so interesting. I'll just say it's so interesting. And it's so, so well proven in this series of experiments. What does that change, do you think, that now we know that zebrafish have empathy? Does that protect them from our destruction? Uh, No, because, you know, knowing that other people have empathy doesn't protect them. Yeah, good point. Look at some of the absolute horrors that are going on right now that... Mm -hmm. I didn't expect would ever happen again, this kind of stuff, you know, in Ukraine, especially. There's a bill being debated right now in the Peruvian Congress to strip indigenous people in Peru from their land rights. So the fact that we know about empathy is not a protector. If I might say to other everybody else in the world for just a a millisecond, people like you and I might be persuaded that if a creature obviously feels and obviously experiences and obviously is capable of things like sensing well-being or misery or empathy, which many mammals do, and zebrafish, as we will learn in a few days, are also capable of doing, then we would think very differently about them and about the choices that we make. But first of all, a lot of people are not getting this memo They're not reading these things. They're not even aware of it. And it's certainly not being widely taught. And it goes against the devaluation of the world that is part of the bedrock of our Western value system. That's a problem. It's it's one of the fundamental ones. And you're right to point out that the quote-unquote othering, we do it just as much with our own species and neighbors as we do with other species. So why would it be different for zebrafish? Which is a bit of a depressing thought. I want to touch a little bit on those more challenging emotions maybe near the end of our conversation. But if we move a little bit to the subject of culture... Mm-hmm. One of my favorite writers uh, is called Robert Bringhurst. Uh, He was living in the Pacific Northwest. He's written some incredible books. And one of them is called Tree of Meaning. It's, you know, top five book I recommend to people. And he speaks to this, I guess, truth, if you could call it that, which is, you know, underlying all of cultures, the fundamental culture is nature. And the nature is expressed through human culture and how we take inspiration from the living world. And it might be different art forms, different creations, different songs, different dances. And... What I love about your books is that you show us how, of course, right, but still how many other creatures also take their cultural inspiration from the living world around them. And they create all of these customs and traditions and practices and tools. And it's this variation between different species and how they express those cultures uh, that you, you call it as a culture. You've mentioned migration patterns, communication, food selection, foraging strategies, courtship, play, etc., I guess what I'd like to ask you first is, when you say animal culture, what are the one or two favorite examples you'd like to share with people that might be uh, more surprising to them? I mean, how you're defining culture and what it means. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is to first define culture and what it is that we're exactly talking about. Because most people, you say culture and they think, well, fashion and sports and religion and music and you look at other animals and they don't have any of those things. So the conclusion is they don't have culture. But those things are not culture. Those things are the products of culture. Culture is what you learn socially that answers the the basic question of how do we live here in this place? And that is what varies from population to population among quite a few other kinds of animals 
I would say the idea of cognition and emotion is very, very widespread in other animals, way, way down along the evolutionary ladder to invertebrates and insects and things like that, that have been shown experimentally to have different personalities, individual to individual, and to make differing choices. There's a book I just finished last night called The Mind of a Bee. Astonishing stuff, very, very scientific, and just very eye-opening about what this tiny, tiny little brain is capable of in terms of awareness, recognizing other individuals, making choices, having different personalities, and stuff like that. So that's very widespread. Culture is a lot less widespread, but it is much more widespread than we appreciate, especially since until about 20 years ago, many scientists and anthropologists insisted that culture is uniquely human, no other animals have it. But many, many other animals have to learn a lot about what it takes to live from where we learn it, from our parents and from their social group. So culture is the skills, the preferences, even the aesthetics that flow socially. And that is just different from pure instinct. One other way of thinking of it is that humans have a pure instinct for learning a human kind of language. But which language we learn is purely cultural. I love that um, you mentioned the aesthetics piece. We'll get to it in a second, but the link that you made between culture and beauty and evolution, I think is really fascinating. And I'm so excited to talk about that. While we're on examples, I learned a few things about whales <laughs> by reading you. Um, the first is just absolute ignorance on my part. I didn't realize that whales were creatures that left the ocean, went to land, and then went back in the ocean. And they're like, oh, I just want to be under the water again. And they went back in. Well, it wasn't exactly that whales came out of the water. It was another creature, right? That then went on land and then became a whale. <laughs> it was more like fish came out of the water. And then, you know, they eventually evolved mm -hmm. a big branch called mammals. And then some mammals became re-aquatic. And we see the whole sweep of that living with us today. There are certain animals that frequent marshes and there are others that live in marshes and watery habitats and they have webbed feet. And then there are others that live almost entirely in the water, but they come out to give birth and to nurse their young. And those are seals and sea lions and walruses and a couple of things like that. And then there are the ones that are fully committed to an entire life in the water. And all, all of that was a process of various kinds of adaptations that happened over tens of millions of years. But the really amazing thing is that for us, tens of millions of years is a long time. But that's a lot less than 10% of the time that life has been around, a lot less. And so... What we see in a whale is, for instance, in their flipper, they have exactly the same bones that we have in our hand because the entire basic blueprint is a mammalian blueprint. It was set, and the only thing that differs is basically the shape of it that is adapted to all these various lifestyles. I think, I don't know, maybe it's just me being weird, but I feel like there's something so touching about that, that there was a fork at some point and some of our ancestors just returned to the water and some of us stayed on land. And even though we look entirely different today, there's this, um, just the common ancestry. And as you say, the common physiology is, I think there's such a poetry to that. Um, and, and something I really found fascinating is when you spoke about the codas uh, that whales have in their cultures, which are signals of identity and declarations of belonging. Can you speak a little bit to those codas and, and what they mean? Yeah, so sperm whales are the most cultural of all of the really big whales. So that's different from dolphins. And dolphins includes orcas or killer whales. So they are very cultural as well. But among the big whales, sperm whales have a unique and pretty different social organization. It's a lot like elephants. The females all stay together 
in the family of their birth for their whole lives. The males go off at adolescence. They have a different kind of a life strategy and trajectory. And in the female families, they use these series of clicks that are patterned a little bit like a simple Morse code. And with that, they announce who they are as individuals, which family they belong to, and another layer of social strata for them is groups of families belong to these units that the scientists call clans. So one clan might have three or four families of sperm whales, or it may have hundreds. They differ enormously in size. That's probably a result of the history of whaling having killed off such a huge percentage of them in the 1800s and the 1900s. But the point is they have this social organization. And one of the things about culture that overlaps with identity is that we understand who we are by who we are with, what group we belong to. If a whale identifies another whale as being from the same clan because of the codas that they're communicating back and forth, they can mix with them if they're in the same clan. If they're in a different clan, they don't mix. They avoid each other. Kind of like we would more naturally do if there are people speaking our own language or people that we can't understand. We would gravitate to the ones speaking our own language. It's not that they're hostile. It's that they don't mix. And they do different things. They travel at different speeds. They travel at different distances from the coast. They hunt differently. And this is another key function of culture is that it allows you to understand what you do with others so that you can all cooperate and live together. If you expect to travel at a certain rate of speed and you're in with others that are traveling at a different rate of speed, well, you can't really get along all that well because you're doing different things instead of doing the same thing. It's, you know, an analogy in humans. I've mentioned language a couple of times, but, but another analogy is let's say you go into a house of worship and it's not your religion. You just don't know what to do. Everybody else there knows what to do. So where would you go? You would go in the house of worship where you understand what to do because you do it the way everybody else does it because that's what you were taught. So that's how culture functions. It allows you to be with and cooperate with all the other individuals who are doing things the same way because you understand each other and it answers that question of how do we live here where we live. It might be too metaphysical or esoteric what I'm about to say, but as I was reading about the codas and, you know, I'm swimming along and I'm like, hey, I'm Alexa. And you're like, I'm Carl. And like, maybe we don't understand each other. I'm curious about what it means that in other species, not just human, there's this impulse to individuate or self-identify. You know, and when you think of a lot of the sort of Eastern cultures, it's about interbeing and that there is no such thing as the individual, let's say physically. So the fact that these animals are saying, hey, this is me, I'm here. It's not necessarily a question. It's, it's more of a reflection on that impulse that is obviously purely not just human, but it's, it's funny to think that whales are doing that as well. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of a blend. They're saying, hi, it's me and we are together. Ah, important. And yeah. in our culture, there's a lot of that, but there's also a lot of hi, it's me and I'm going to beat you. Hi, it's me and you're my competitor. And if you look at other human cultures, traditional human cultures, there's a lot more hi, it's me and we are together. A lot of human cultures do differentiate who's in their culture from who's on the outside of their culture. You know, other language groups, other cultural groups. I've been reading about indigenous North American cultures. And there's more of a sense that 
you become great in the culture by what you contribute to helping others get along and get what they need and have what they need and sharing and things like that. Whereas uh, the way we do it, we're just much more competitive even within our own culture. And I think the most emblematic example of that is the sports teams that we have that are so incredibly popular. They are set up so that you win by making others lose. It's different than winning a race where you just win a race because you're the fastest. You don't win a race because the other people in the race are your opponents. They're not your opponents. It's just everybody's running the race. And and there's competition and somebody wins. But where you have teams, really the goal is to make the others lose. You win by making others lose. And I think that that's a kind of a catastrophic lesson to be one of the mainstream examples that we hold up in a society is that you win by making others lose. At the risk of having you kicked out of the academy, because I'm going to anthropomorphize, have other examples in other taxa, other kingdoms where those team opponent dynamics exist? I can understand two clans coming together and you know fighting for territory, but I think you're speaking to to something a little bit deeper. I'm just wondering if and I'm thinking of a naysayer listening to this and being like, well, like, you know, animals fight each other all the time. So what's different about how humans create the opposition? Well, there is a lot of territoriality all throughout nature. And there's a lot of competition in the whole living world. That's just a basic way that it is on this planet. But an ideal that is held up as a high status thing that winning entails making others lose is different than just you know surviving by having your group hold on to the territory it needs that i think is different and when i was in high school the, that's when this thing about sports really first struck me because buses would leave my high school with banners saying well, my high school was called Syosset, and, and it would be like, go Syosset, destroy Herricks. And I was thinking, why? Herricks is just over there. It's a few miles away. Why do we want to destroy Herricks? And it was especially acute for me because it was during the Vietnam War when the United States was waging a meaningless, totally immoral attempt to destroy another bunch of people. And here in my high school, we hadn't yet learned, even though we were registering for the draft, that this is not really a very good ideal. And what I was doing instead of playing sports was I was a musician. When musicians got together, everybody won and the audience won. And that seemed a lot better than go and destroy. So I've always carried that with me. It just doesn't have to be, let's go and destroy when there's <laughs> such an array of much better approaches. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. So aside from animal culture just being absolutely divinely beautiful in and of itself, like you had this image in um, one of the books about how the world or the oceans have always been awash with communication, right? You have the Pacific songs, the Atlantic songs. And right now, as we're recording this, as people are listening to this, there are these chants just echoing and resonating through the ocean depths, onwards and onwards and onwards. And this has been happening for millions of years. And it's the same above ground with the birds. And I was recently reading this Guardian article that made me sad as these things do. And it was speaking about how excessive land clearing in Australia is leading to these endangered honey eaters, these birds losing their songs. Yeah. And then they're even adopting the songs of, of other birds. And that's making the males less attractive to females. And I'm going to talk about that attraction piece now, obviously, for a reason. But, you know, as we think about cultural extinction, let's not forget that there are many other songs and languages and music in that uh, when we extinct other creatures, we deaden and quieten the whole planet's surface, which is a sad image, but I think one that's important to hold. So I want to talk about how all of this informs conservation and regeneration, because this is a space that I work in as well. And, you know, this, the CBD, Convention on Biological Diversity, their definition of, of diversity is genetic species and ecosystem. And I really liked how in your book, you're like, yes, and there's this 
fourth form of diversity that drives evolution. There's this thing called cultural diversity. And it may be obvious, but you don't hear about a lot in ecology or even in the kind of climate biodiversity movement. So you use this term, culture-based segregation, which if, if I understand it correctly, is this idea that different behaviors turn on different genes. Um, but could you explain a little bit about what you mean by this culture-based segregation and the implications that it has for for how we understand evolution? Yeah, well, f the first part is a non-genetic part, which is kind of my point. Those honey eaters you were talking about in Australia, their problem is that the young males do not have adult males around from which to learn the song of their species. And because they're not singing right, they're not attracting the very few females that are left. And this is causing an acceleration in their decline. Worse than you would expect if it was just there's X percent of habitat is gone and so there's X percent decline in the honey eaters. It's worse than that because their song culture is getting destroyed. That's one of the implications for conservation is that culture is about how do we survive here? How do we live here? What do we do? Where is food? What is danger? Where's the water? Where do we go at night? Where and how do we migrate? All these kinds of things that vary from population to population that are learned in subtle ways. So people have found that in some reintroduction attempts, they go into places, there's none of a certain species left there, but they've bred some in captivity from somewhere else. They're going to reintroduce them. A lot of those attempts fail, or there's incredibly high mortality because these things get let out of cages and you think, well, their instincts are going to take over. They know what to do. Well, no, because they don't know where they are. They don't know what to do there. And they're basically being abandoned in the hope that they'll know what to do. For some animals, it is mostly instinct that they live on. But for social animals, there's a lot of learning socially, which is culture, that is required. So there was a parrot that was reintroduced in the southwest United States. They all got killed. Introductions of things like sheep, wild sheep I'm talking about, bighorn sheep and things like that have taken several generations before they reinvent a culture that basically tells them, you know, usually they're reintroduced in the high summer. There's a lot of food around. The weather is nice. It's a good time to let them out. And then winter comes and they don't know where to go. They don't know where they are. They're up at 7,000 feet in some meadow. They don't know where to go. And so they just start dying because there's no food and they're freezing to death. If they had elders to follow down the mountain passes into the lowlands, they'd be fine, like they had been fine for 10,000 years. So these are the conservation implications of culture. And that's why when we talk about biodiversity, we have to understand that you can't just lose a culture in a region and expect that throwing a few animals there will get them back because it doesn't always work. And it's a lot harder and it's a, a lot more difficult, a lot more expensive, a lot more everything. It's so intuitive, and yet I'm shocked at how little this is spoken about, right? It's like, yeah, take me, Alexa, plot me in the middle of, I don't know, the Mongolian tundra and survive, right? You're a human. Humans have lived here. You'll be fine. It's like, no, there's things I need to learn. Well, a really great example of exactly that is just think of people who live in the Arctic and people who live in the Amazon rainforest. Any baby growing up in either place, will learn from their elders how to live there. You could learn to live in the Amazon. You could learn to live in the Arctic. Thousands of people have done so for thousands of years. You take somebody raised in the Amazon and put them in the Arctic, they'll be dead very soon. And you take somebody from the Arctic and put them in the jungle in the middle of Brazil, and they'll be dead very soon. That's the importance of culture. And there are other animals for whom culture is that important. If you raised a chimpanzee in your home and you brought it out to the best remaining chimpanzee habitat on earth and opened the crate and left it there, it would die. It would have no idea what to do at all. So like us, chimpanzees have to learn everything about 
how we live and how we survive. We don't really think about it in our culture because it's our culture. So all these skills and everything, it's just, it comes naturally what we do, where the food is, what we look like, how we dress, what our little customs are, like drinking coffee. That's a cultural thing. I mean, we don't think of it that way, but it, it totally is. And you spoke just earlier, right, to the role of elders and in some species also matriarchs for kind of carrying that through. And in your book, you were speaking of the whales and saying survival is higher in families. Who had a, oh, no, this was elephants. I apologize was much higher in families who had a matriarch old enough to remember how her family had survived the previous drought. So these these elders are like, repos- obviously they are, but they're repositories of knowledge of which roots worked. And then, you know, said young mammals, moose, bison, deer, antelope, wild sheep, ibex, learn crucial migration routes and destinations from the elders. So I love this notion that like in the animal kingdom, you also have wisdom keepers. You also have traditional knowledge, and it's held in the old. Oh, totally. It's held in. It's held in the old ones. So, as we think about okay, rewilding or conservation or regeneration, like how can you fabricate the knowledge? And it's also that maybe the same with the um, you know the mother trees that Suzanne Simard works with. It's like there is these ancients that hold information, and when they're gone, it's pretty hard to get it back. Well, with animals, that's certainly true. I know a lot less about the trees. I think the knowledge about the trees is very, very new. And it might be that that kind of communication and the networking in trees may be fundamentally different. Maybe, I don't know, analogous. I I don't know. I'm trying to learn about that too. I, I think 20 years ago, I don't think anything along those lines was known. There was a lot more known about animals for the last 60 or so years, we've been learning a lot about wild animals. And my personal experience is more with animals. So I would say, you know, it's definitely true with animals. Plants, yeah. I'm not sure. You should have Susan I will, on I your will. podcast. I, I know her. She's absolutely wonderful. And she's unbelievably interesting to listen to. I was on a panel with her one time and I was just completely flabbergasted. Yeah, we have a lot of similar friends also in British Columbia and her mother tree initiative is is fantastic. And also something, I was speaking with one of the, the scientists in our lab, Robert, and he was speaking about reintroduction of certain birds on Guam um, on an island. And they had underestimated the role of the individual personalities, right? Like you just think, yeah, throw a few birds together and they'll mate. And this will be the linear projection of how the species, you know, how the population increases. Turns out some of them really didn't want to mate. Some of them wanted to mate a lot. And that there's this role of also the individuals and this kind of messes with a lot of the, you know, the ecological projections, as you say, and the implications are quite vast. So just again, making an encouragement of thinking about the uniqueness of, of the creatures and that they're not going to be that easily explained by a graph or a model. And I think that for those of us working conservation, we have to be flexible for that. They're not just marbles. That's the thing. You know, they're not all the same. And every animal where personality has been looked for, it has been found. Personality, I mean... In the same situation, individuals make different choices and they make those kinds of choices consistent. Some are bolder, some are shyer, some explore more, some stick to, they always do the same route. That's been found in every animal that's been looked for, including insects. So there's an awful lot going on there that we are just starting to learn about. And it's a crucial matter of biodiversity. In Central America, in Costa Rica, there is a reintroduction program for macaws, the the big parrots. And they often try to rewild pets that people had, birds that people had in captivity. It's a very slow process. It takes years. In the wild, they're very, very social. But they've been living with people. They haven't socialized. Some of them are badly socialized, etc., So they do an assessment with how social they are before they decide to let them try to be loose. And in one group, the one that was the least social, in other words, the socially worst adapted, left the cage and was never seen again. The next worst one never integrated with wild birds and had to be recaptured and put in a breeding program. Just couldn't learn to get along in the wild. And then others eventually 
They will begin to hang around with birds that have the culture. They know where things are and what to do, and eventually they can integrate. But that may take several years. So that is a full-on conservation program, and that's the implication there is that the culture has to be included in the program. And if you're not prepared to track these individuals and help support their gradual independence over a series of years, you're basically just abandoning them, which is the word that the person used when describing what they do versus some other groups that they know. And and that's pretty logical. And I think also on the subject of like different individuals, um, and maybe this goes back to the the segregation, but there's been interesting research that's come out recently, right? And you, you referenced some of it about how these mating preferences can actually drive a wedge, let's say, into a species that over time, populations can split into two while they occupy the same region. And you spoke about these fish, the sunfish in some lakes, and that in the same species, you kind of had this splitting into two. And it's not explained by anything else but purely culture, and that culture drives the creation of entirely new species. Right. The sunfish are a good example of that. Orca whales in the Northwest are a really good example of that, where you have certain skills. Remember I said that the sperm whales, the clans will mix if they do the same thing, that they're in the same clan, they do the same thing. And so they can get along. But sometimes specializing means you're really doing a very different thing. So if you're orcas and you're hunting fish, you want to be in a big group and be very loud and noisy to scare the fish into a tight group that become easier to attack. If you're hunting mammals... You want to be in a very small group, maybe only two or three, and you want to be silent because mammals can hear all that noise and they're not going to bunch up into a group. They're going to just evade. They're going to silently get away. So you can't have fish eaters and mammal eaters mixing because they would spoil each other's hunting. And what has happened with those whales is they've not interbred for about 300,000 years and they've totally specialized. The mammal eaters do not consider fish to be food and they probably don't know how to catch them. And the fish eaters, exactly the opposite. They don't consider mammals to be food and they don't hunt them at all. And then there's a third group of killer whales in the Pacific Northwest that specializes on hunting sharks and they stay farther offshore. So they do a different thing focused on different prey, a different distance from the continent. And these specializations have caused the beginning of evolving differently. I mean, you can see the difference in the DNA. You can test the DNA and see a difference. And they have avoided breeding for about 300,000 years. And I guess that makes one wonder the adaptive benefit to doing that. And maybe, you know, if it's just like, I'll stay out of your hair, you stay out of mine, you go for the salmon, I'll go for the seals. The adaptive benefit is, you know, I'm hunting seals. Don't come over here with all that noise. We won't eat if you're with us. Mm -hmm. That's the adaptive significance. It's completely fundamental about surviving. And then the individual behaviors, hunting, foraging, etc., will drive speciation. And we can't get off this call until you speak a little bit to what you shared about beauty, because I think that that is incredibly fascinating and uplifting, and how the sort of mate selection and orientation towards different beautiful forms also drives animal culture. Can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah. The easiest way to talk about this is with birds because we're all familiar with birds and we all know that some birds have really fancy feathers or fancy colors or both. And we know that in a lot of species, especially a lot of songbirds, well, songbirds, ducks, a a few other things, the males are more colorful. And why is this? It is simply because females prefer them that way and that the aesthetic choices of females have, over time, created this condition that is widespread throughout the animal world where the choices of mates determine 
how things look. And those choices are not really practical. They're really mostly aesthetic. They're just aesthetic preferences. So that's one layer. And that layer does certainly drive evolution because that's why they look that way, because these choices have been made over, you know, millions of years. And they are not really in the interest of the males, except for the mating opportunities that the males get, which is is a huge thing. It's the deciding factor. But other than that, the males are more at risk from predators because they're more obvious, they're more showy. They have to carry these burdens around. There's another layer, though, in the whole thing about beauty. I think most fundamentally, you have to understand that if a feather looks beautiful, it's not actually because the feather is beautiful. The feather is just an object. It has a chemical composition and a structure. Beauty is not a component of the feather. Beauty is an aesthetic impression created in our brain. Our mind creates beauty. Beauty is a response of a mind. It's not a property of the thing. And then it it begins, I think, to get kind of mystical because there are things that are really beautiful to people that have no practical value at all to us. You could say with birds, their aesthetics result in who gets to mate and who is chosen as a father. That's a practical consideration, right? But we are not descendants of pollinators insects and like bees and butterflies, they are not our ancestors. They're a separate shoot. And yet we find flowers to be universally attractive to people. And the scent of flowers is universally attractive to people. Why should that be? Why do we think that flowers are more beautiful than roots? Our mind is doing this. Why is it doing that? Why is it that people find the stars beautiful or the moon beautiful or the sound of a breeze in the treetops beautiful or the sound of running water in a stream? These things that are of no real use to us at all, but they're part of the basic layout of the world we find the basic characteristics of the world around us to be very, very beautiful. Most people's favorite colors are not some really rare color that you almost never see in nature. It's mostly blue or green. You ask people what your favorite color is. Most people, it's either the color of plants or the color of the sky, the two most, uh, sky and the sea, the, the two most abundant colors in the world are most people's favorite. So to me, what that suggests is that our brain is adapted to feeling that the world is a beautiful place. Try to imagine having no sense of beauty at all. So you're just in the world. Don't do that to me. (laughs) Everything is completely neutral. And people who've lost their sense of smell and taste during COVID have an idea of what this is like. That happened to my wife. I I didn't experience that. So your interest in food goes away, basically, because it doesn't taste like anything at all. It's not like it tastes like cardboard. Cardboard tastes like something. It tastes like nothing. So your interest goes away. Now, if you multiply that by everything you have to do to stay alive, that is a really, really grim equation because staying alive takes a lot of effort. Why would you put that effort in if you didn't get the gratification that you are in a beautiful place. That's a gratifying thing. Feeling love for somebody or for your family. That's an aesthetic thing that your mind creates these these feelings to make you feel at home. So are you saying that our proclivity, our attraction to beauty is sort of the world, the planets, the universe's reward to us for being here and being alive and making it worth it in the first place? Yes. And that's why it evolved. That's wonderful. (laughs) To make life worth the effort that it takes. And I think that, you know, in a sense, you could say, as has been said, that beauty is the thing that saves us. 
And the question for us now, in this time that we're in is, you know, will we save beauty? I've often felt that the world is expressing its beauty to itself, for itself, that there's some kind of, like I'm looking out the window and there's this beautiful little, um, oh, it's not little apple tree in the neighbor's yard and it's just starting to blossom. And some part of it is just like, it's doing it because it's fun and beautiful and because when the birds come and pollinate, there's some kind of joy to, hey, look at me, I'm expressing myself in this way. And obviously there's absolutely no way of discussing that or proving that, but there's a sort of beholding of itself and human beings, us being able to behold and then create art and poetry and dance and song from the beauty is kind of like the perpetuation of that initial expression of joy, if that makes sense. I think it does. Yeah, I think it does too. I had a few things I wanted to talk about. We're not going to have maybe time for it because ending on beauty feels like a really wonderful place. So maybe to gently close, there's this natural ability to orient towards beauty. How do we support people to orient towards that, to be inspired? Again, there's this line in, in the book where you say, you know, the miracles of everyday life, the earth, the place where miracles come so cheap that they are routinely discarded, which is so true. Like I'm walking down the street and I'm like, look at that flower. And everyone's just like going about their day. I'm like, you're discarding the miracle. So for people like us who really care and people who are listening who I think care too, how do we support others in, in being awake to that beauty that is expressing itself? Well, you know, we were talking about culture and culture is the skills and the abilities and the attractions that we learn socially. First of all, we need to relearn that the world is just a series of miracles upon miracles. And then we have to teach that to children. We have to teach that in school and we have to teach that in our families. And we're a very, very long way from doing that at scale anyway. Although I don't think it's a big step for a lot of people who would rather show their children the beautiful little things about the world. I think a lot of people take a tremendous amount of pleasure in pointing little things out to kids. And that needs to be valued as a really, really fundamentally important thing. And I think part of that is the wonder that can be shared around learning how other creatures are choosing to live, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and making their own lives here next to ours. That for me is a, a constant source of wonder. And, you know, as we lose the animals, that then we start to lose a lot of that beauty. Um, I'm, I'm going to end with this great line that you used as well, which is <laughs> just funny, but I like it. It's been a long, strange trip, but here we are all together now. I have that feeling. It is a long, weird, absolutely glorious trip. And and yeah, we are all here, many, many species upon species trying to figure it out. And maybe the humans have right now some disproportionate role in that. So yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see, see what we do with um, our ability to perceive the beauty and have that drive us. And not just terror, the obligation, the fear, the guilt. I think it's hard to, to orient towards beauty when you're in that mind space. Mm-hmm. So let's keep the beauty foremost. Indeed. Carl, thank you so very much. I'm really grateful we got this chance to speak. Oh, thank you, Alexa. It's been a really fun hour. and hope we do it again sometime. So that was Carl Safina, ecologist, author, conservationist, and animal translator. To close today's episode, I want to remind us that all of this matters tremendously, not just as a feel-good story, but because we must, as Carl says, penetrate past the labels and feel beings being their own selves, living with their families, sharing the air where our two worlds meet. No part of the planet is now spared from our chemicals, our plastics, our PFAs. And the creatures we share this earth with are struggling to adapt. We're moving faster than evolution can maybe keep up. We've woven an albatross that is found gagging on a toothbrush on a lone and bare island and all these other creatures into our society by our human actions. 
And as Kara reminds us, that does create a certain type of obligation, moral or otherwise. And so my question to us is, can this knowledge, can this wonder, can our understanding of their cultures call forth what might be the most elevating of human qualities? Things like empathy, compassion, foresight, and generosity of spirit. I really do think it can, and that's why I'm doing this with you right now and sharing these stories. So have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for tuning in. Next, we will be tracking bison in the mountains of Romania. I'll see you next time. Be well. <laughs>